Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, Internet Explorers. Welcome once again to the window into your future. It's time for a little tech talking with a man who not only talks the talk but walks the walk. Hello, Matthew Dickerson. What's been happening this week? You've been watching me walk the walk, have you? Oh, I certainly like to watch your style. <laughs> Good work. Well, let's go back in our memory banks, James. My wife has just been on the computer just before we started this podcast, desperately trying to line up in the virtual sense to get some tickets to Billy Joel, who's oh, coming to Australia. It, 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 you always feel like there's that, that, that real nervousness that comes with buying tickets these days. For well, a you're sitting there going, do I have three computers ready to go? Do I have my yeah. phone and my computer? What do I do? Are they registering me? Am I even there? Like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but if we go back to the old days, what used to happen, can you remember lining up for tickets, physically lining up to buy tickets to some big concert? Well, I never did it, but I saw it on the news. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess I've, I've forgotten what it was like um, to do anything like that. That's right. Imagine a Billy Joel, for example, coming to Australia in the old days, and you did. You'd say, oh, they're selling tickets from some place in Sydney or Melbourne, wherever it might be. So you would have had to travel down there, I assume a day or two beforehand, <laughs> sleep, get your sleeping bag out, sleep, line up. sounds like the up. stuff of fables of days of yore. <laughs> Surely no one did this, but it must have but happened. Yeah, travel to Sydney and with your tent and, um, and camp outside Ticket Tech. And you had to do it with a friend because if you were lined up and you said, oh, I've just got to go to the toilet, so you duck off, you'd come back and everyone around you would go, oh, I don't yeah. know who you are, what are you talking about? You weren't in the line. No, I was just here a minute ago. Remember <laughs> I asked you? I don't remember that. And that person says, oh, I just moved up one spot. So you would have had to do it with two of you, so you'd go but down imagine, there. Yeah, and, and people would have been lining up and then they might have gotten to the, the window and then <laughs> – I'm sorry, thank you for lining up and camping out for three days, but we're sold out. You wanted a, a ticket in the uh, in the certain area, you wanted a, a ticket in the mosh pit. Sorry, they're all, the last guy there, he got the last one, go and talk to him. And so, yeah, exactly right. Well, I don't know what scalping's like these days, um, but I can, uh, well, I know back in the day, um, scalping was big time. Like yeah, people yeah. would buy you know, wads and wads and wads of tickets and, um, and then just hawk them on the night. Yeah, so it's obviously changed that dramatically now but it is the nervousness is as you say lining up on the computer yeah. and hoping you get one and then the the real issue my wife went down to well, Robbie Williams recently when he was in Australia and they missed tickets to the first concert because they had tickets but they wanted to get better tickets <laughs> so they thought they'd try and get the better tickets and then they got no tickets so oh, wow. and luckily put on a second concert so they still went down and yeah. watched but that's the thing it is this whole thing oh is it the right ticket now, I click now, it's, it's, it's it. Whereas at the window, you could have said, can I just ask a few questions about that? There's no time to ask questions when you line up virtually, but it has changed. I mean, this is just another example, I suppose, of we forget about how we had to do things before yeah. technology came along to help our lives in so many ways and, and getting concerts for, or yeah, getting tickets for concerts. completely forgotten about that, that sort of ordeal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're in a brave new world. Indeed. Now, I dropped a little bit of branding into the intro today. I'm not sure if, whether or not you've picked it up uh, or not, but there's a tiny tinge of sadness to open the show today as we farewell an old friend who took us on adventures that we never dreamed of back in the 90s and the noughties. But like a well-cuddled teddy with a stuffing oozing out from frayed seams and thinning fur, I guess most of us just outgrew Internet Explorer as a web browser. Of course, I say most of us. I'm pretty sure my mum and dad have still been pretty faithful all along the way and that there may have been two or three others on this planet with nearly 8 billion people on it. 
Hi, Mum and Dad. I hope you're enjoying the show. But, Matt, all good things must come to an end and the lights are dimming for the good old Internet Explorer. They may be part of the 0.65% of people who are still using Internet Explorer. Wow. Down from the heady days when Internet Explorer was the market leader. The number one way you browse the web going back several decades was Internet Explorer. Well, I know that if I click on a link on something that I'm using through uh, you know, the department website, uh, click on a link like a YouTube link, it'll always go through Internet Explorer first. Right. I'm doing well, what's going on there? <laughs> Why am I doing this? There's some association there that obviously <laughs> will be changing very shortly or probably by now. So it's about 26 years old. So it's been around for a while. It's uh, the granddaddy of the Internet. Exactly right. And when you use, say, Edge, which is the modern equivalent of Internet Explorer from Microsoft, you think, well, it all looks pretty much the same and it's just the next level. But Edge was rewritten from the ground up because obviously the Internet's changed a bit over Mm. the years, so they had to change it from the ground up. But going from being the market leader, it just shows you how quickly things change in our modern connected world. Going from being the market leader, having the majority market share, to not that long in the whole scheme of things, that not that long later, to suddenly being 0.65% of market share. At the moment, Chrome is 64.95% of market share. Even Safari, which many people use Safari just from their mobile device, for example, mm. that's at 19.01% market share. That's a lot higher than I would have thought. But yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah, that's right. So you've got other programs out there people are using. So again, IE at such a low percentage, well, yep, it was left behind. And again, Edge is probably, you could say, well, it wasn't really left behind. It was replaced by Edge, which mm. to a large extent is true. And for people out there that have got some programs that needed to run in IE, that's the real issue. Luckily, Edge has got some compatibility mode. So if you've got a program, and when you talk about some of your department programs, they may be or have been written for IE specifically because there are programs out there that were written to take advantage of things in IE, then that Edge compatibility mode may be what you need to do to actually make those programs still run. But Mm. good old IE, we saw the little blue E with a bit of a whoosh through it. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but we sat there and looked at that for a long time and we just by default used that and now it is no more. I remember uh, being introduced to Chrome um, and that was, you know, that was by students who were (laughs) laughing at me saying, so what are you still using Internet Explorer for? I thought, (laughs) why are you... Am I no longer hip? Um, <laughs> and so, so I got into Chrome. But uh, I don't know. I like using metaphors. Um, uh, Internet Explorer sort of became a bit like the faithful old family car. You know, the one the, with the smoky exhaust and the the window that you weren't allowed to wind down because it never wound up properly. And yeah, the the seat that um, you could feel the steel frame through down the through the cushions there. Yeah, yeah there was a, it was a faithful old family friend, but. Um, Yeah, it's uh, time to put it out to pasture. Yeah, and it's got a bit of history there too. Don't forget that when they bundled Internet Explorer with Windows, that led to the whole antitrust suite that the United States took against Microsoft because they were limiting competition because you had to use IE because it was bundled with the operating system. So we've forgotten about those battles now, but that was a big issue at the time. The whole idea that Microsoft were just using their market domination with Windows to make you use a version of a browser that, you may not have chosen to use, you just did because it was there. So that's probably what made it such a strong competitor because they did bundle it in yeah. there. Yeah, and and the pushback, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, that's probably made you know, things like communication much more open now anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So anyway, we move on. Another chapter has been closed and Here we go. there's another door to go through. And here it is, folks. Bill Gates has made a comment on NFTs and I reckon he's on the money. Matt, Tell us how Bill Gates feels about non-fungible tokens. He feels about the same as people felt about 
tulips back in around 1637, I reckon. Oh, right. That's an odd reference. A little bit of But I'm going to go with it. (laughs) Tell us more about tulips back in 1637. I'm glad you asked, James. (laughs) If we go back just three years before that, in 1634, Mm. if you were living in Holland and you had about 4,000 guilders sitting in your back pocket of loose change and said, what am I going to do with my 4,000 guilders? You had a couple of choices. You could have bought a tulip. Just a tulip, because you like the look of them, maybe, but I'll get to that in a moment. A single tulip. A single tulip. Or you could have bought a mansion on the Amsterdam Grand Canal. Right. Seems like a fair bit of difference there. Either or. Either or. Tough choice. <laughs> mansion, tulip. Mansion, tulip. So you bought the mansion. There was some intrinsic value. The stones, the doors, the building of it. There was some intrinsic value in it. Not and as obviously, pretty as a tulip, though. Not as pretty as a tulip, but more to the point, you might have bought that mansion for your 4,000 guilders, and you might have held onto it for... 10 or 20 years, and you might have sold it down the track for maybe 4,100 guilders. But if you bought a tulip, tulip mania was out of control. So you might have thought that your tulip might have been worth 5,000 guilders in a week's time or 6,000 guilders in a day's time. Who knows? The market was out of control for tulips. The whole thing with this tulip mania was out of control. Inflation in tulips was crazy. And you bought a tulip for one of two reasons. One... You wanted to show how wealthy you were because, look, I can afford a tulip. Or two, you hocked everything you had and borrowed money and begged to buy a tulip because you knew you were going to make your fortune on this tulip (laughs) when you sold it again in a short period of time. Of course, you can guess where the story goes. 1637 was when the tulip market collapsed because there was no intrinsic value in the tulip. So the guy that bought his mansion says, Someone well, realized that if you just plant one of these bulbs, you'll get a tulip of your own. You'll get more than one maybe. <laughs> wow, what a great way to do that. So the whole thing there is that there was no intrinsic value. There was nothing of value. Sure, a small amount of value, but not 4,000 guilders worth of value. Mm. So that market collapsed. There were lots of people that thought, well, I can buy my tulip, make my fortune, it doesn't matter that it's got no intrinsic value because the price is going up and the price will keep going up. So surely I'm going to make my fortune this way. Of course, once it collapsed, lots of people lost their fortunes, all their borrowings, everything they'd put up as security, that was all gone. So a huge collapse there. And so there's often, from a, an economics point of view, there's often study around that whole tulip mania and what it can do when you see this thing just get out of control. And the old joke, of course, is something is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. People were willing to pay a lot of money for a tulip, so that was what it was worth. But the, the reality is there's no value there. And I think a baseball card's a bit the same. You take a baseball card, it's got a bit of cardboard, a bit of thicker paper, and a bit of ink on there. The value of that is really a couple of cents. But if you've got one with a Mickey Mantle picture on there, it's yeah. worth millions, and especially the rarity of those as well. So it just seems crazy. It's something that's got no real value associated with it in terms of other uses, put a certain combination of things there and it can be worth a lot of money, except when someone says it's not worth a lot of money. And yeah. then let's get back to Bill Gates. So <laughs> Bill Gates said that NFTs and cryptocurrencies, well, he bundled that in that same lot, said that he believes that 100% both of those are based on the greater fool theory. Mm. And the idea of that is that you can make money out of something by buying something that doesn't have any intrinsic value as long as you can find a greater fool than you to buy it off you at a higher price. So well, this is the funny thing. I remember seeing in a story um, not not long ago um, where someone started off with a paperclip, 
and they traded on eBay for like a, a pencil or something yep. like that. And then they built it up and they ended up getting themselves a house. Yeah, yeah. It's a great story. It's, it's a- an amazing thing. Like, uh, but yeah, the greater fool theory. Yeah. And, and, and for me, NFTs and, and cryptocurrency, there's nothing behind them at all. At least baseball cards have got a bit of cardboard there. <laughs> That's and there's, there's a nice more. picture on them and there's maybe <laughs> some stats about Mickey Mantle. Um, but, um, but yeah, these are just... This is thinner than thin air. Yeah, that's right. So it, it is that thing where an overpriced asset can still make you money as long as you find someone else who'll pay more for it. Yeah, so that's right. That's that's where Bill's coming from. And we've seen some of the huge fluctuations in cryptocurrencies recently, Bitcoin in particular, where again someone bought it at twenty or thirty thousand dollars, think this is gonna be great, and it goes up to sixty four thousand dollars, this is gonna be absolutely unbelievable. I won't sell yet because it's gonna go to seventy thousand, or you might think you're gonna make your fortune on it, so you buy it at sixty four thousand and then it goes to twenty thousand the next day. The greatest strength of a cryptocurrency is its greatest weakness. The whole concept is we're not being manipulated, managed, restricted, regulated even by some government somewhere. We're our own free willing <laughs> currency. People can throw their real money however they want. Yeah. yeah. So that whole strength of it is also its weakness because there is no government, no regulatory authority sitting behind there saying, we'll just keep an eye on this and make sure it all goes along and does what it's meant to do. The other thing I think with cryptocurrencies in particular is that they were designed to allow you to trade free of all these other restrictions that governments impose on the normal money that might be used in uh, a normal country. But people are buying them now just to make money. Mm. So they're not really saying, I'll use that to buy my cup of coffee each morning. Mm. They're saying, I'll buy that because the price is going to go up and then I'll sell it again. So they're making money out of, as you say, nothingness. It's just you're, you're trading on the hope that that price goes up 21st century snake oil is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the quotes I love from Bill Gates when he talked about this is that he thinks that if you have less money than Elon Musk, you should probably not invest in cryptos and NFTs, which basically means everyone in the world. Because Elon's got the most money in the world. And look, Elon has shown how ridiculous the whole market is when he took the Dogecoin, I've taken your pronunciation now, (laughs) he's taken Dogecoin and just made a few comments on Twitter and suddenly its price rocketed. There was Mm. nothing different in Dogecoin from one day to the next, except Elon tweeted about it. So who knows? He might have just been doing a bit of trading on Dogecoin, bought a bunch of Dogecoin, then went and made a few comments, and next thing it shoots up and he sells them again, sells them to some greater fool that's willing to pay more. Call that the Elon Musk factor. (laughs) That's right. Now, I don't want to say that this is anything other than a tech podcast. We are not a financial advising podcast, so I'm not giving financial advice here, but... If Bill Gates says this isn't a good idea, I reckon we probably should listen to Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, it doesn't matter to him either way. He's got heaps of cash. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and I suppose he's probably trying to do the right thing and give some advice out there. Yeah. Elon maybe just a bit different. So who knows? But I haven't got any cryptocurrencies. I've got no NFTs. Not interested in them at all. I've worked too hard for my money to go and give it away to some snake oil salesman. <laughs> snake oil is what it is. Okay, now, um, feels like a mic drop might be appropriate right about there. I feel like this next story, though, I'm going to do a, a quick shout-out to my dad once again, who's somewhat of a botanical expert. Now, I'm not great at remembering plant names, but I do like to know what's growing in my garden, and I have been known to send Dad a photo or two and call on his skills at uh, like a one-sided game of botanical guess who. I tried an app once and ended up getting a continuous procession of notifications after that and, and junk mail, and I didn't even get it right most of the time anyway. 
For those of you with an iPhone, though, no, and, and you've got no access to my father, of course, the good news is, is that you can alleviate your botanical curiosity without downloading any apps with frustrating marketing tools, etc. Matt, another one of these sneaky little iPhone features that people didn't know about. And I think what Apple are doing at the moment is they look for some apps out there that seem to do a pretty good job or seem to be a good concept, maybe not delivering it in the best way. And they go, well, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't we just build that into the iOS? So if you go and create this great killer app that you think you're going to sell lots of for your 99 cents or whatever you might do to have a market potential there to make some money out of it, just be careful Apple doesn't come along and say that's a great idea, we'll take it, because that's exactly what they've done here. And there are apps out there, as you've said, that you can point to plants and say, what is this plant? And it'll give you the common name and the Latin name Mm. or the botanical name, whatever it might be, and give you a bit of history about it all. But they're not perfect and they've got to make some money somehow so whether you pay for it or whether you get the ads that come through but in general a bit clumsy you got to open up the app and whatever apple have now built it into their ios and you take a photo of a plant that it recognizes automatically behind the scenes it pops up a little blue eye at the bottom of the picture and you can click on that and it will then give you all that same information you would have had to open an app to get now i'm sure it's still not perfect i'm sure you do it and sometimes you go no that's not what I thought it was, I'm definitely a different plant, and you go and do a bit more research. That's when you call your dad, that's right, and say, I'm going to send you a photo, Dad. Can you get that photo on your phone? And then have a look at that, and then tell me exactly what it is. So essentially, that feature is great, but it gets better because you can then do it with landmarks. So you're tripping around on an overseas trip, and you go, gee, that looks like something interesting there, and I'm sure it's got some sort of significance there, but I don't know this country well enough. I'll take a photo. Oh, look at that. There's a blue eye at the bottom. I'll click on that and it'll give me information about that landmark or about an artwork. So when you're going for a nice tour through the Louvre, you can look at artworks and go, well, I'm not going to read that little thing beside it. I'm going to get up to that information on that artwork. Take a photo, blue eye, hit that, and away you go. So it is just building more and more into the operating system. Obviously, it's very competitive with Android and the Apple's iOS. So they're really trying to come up with ways that, make you want to use their operating system over the competition and just extra features that are built in. So I think this is great. It started in America, but it has now expanded. We've got places like Australia, Canada, UK, Singapore, Indonesia. So you've got it available in a variety of countries, not everywhere around the world, but in a variety of countries, which I think is fantastic and again helps us as we travel around the world once we can do that again, which we kind of can now. And I also reckon that so many more people need to know what plant that is as well. I think that's right. That's absolutely right. And again, you look at that and someone says, what have you got growing in your garden? You go, oh, I've got no idea. I've got some green things and sometimes they have some pretty flowers on them. But yeah, just being able to have that conversation and know what's there, I think adds to the knowledge base across the world. I think it's fantastic. Generosity from trillion dollar companies only stretches so far, of course. And now the long-suffering team at Google are looking for some recompense for all their wonderful efforts. And they're going to start with small businesses, it seems. Matt, some of these free internet services are now going to come with a price tag. Yeah, it is a bit disappointing. You probably think Google, for example, does have enough money. They've only got a trillion dollars or something. That's right. (laughs) They can probably survive for a little bit longer. And way back in 2004 when they introduced Gmail, it was free and it was guaranteed, which I'm not sure if that's a really ironclad guarantee, apparently not, but guaranteed to be free forever. Set up your email address with Gmail and that's it, free forever, happy Mm. days, on you go, which has worked pretty much in the main for the last 18 years. But now Google has said, well, you know what, we've got private individuals out there using free email, we're happy to leave them using that, that's fine. 
But business users out there, yeah, maybe. If there was a way for us to make some money. <laughs> That's right. We're struggling. We're struggling. <laughs> so it's probably because they've got to pay for their news now. That's probably part of it. They look yeah, at the okay. bottom line and go, look, we've got to pay these various places across the world for their news content. So what are we going to do to make that up? So their solution is to start charging for your business email accounts. And in some respect, I'm sure there are other organisations out there cheering because they do have business grade email and they do charge for it. Not much. Some companies I've seen charge a few dollars a month, maybe up to $10 a month per email address. And if I go back many years, James, when we used to set up exchange service for clients, it was really tough for some of those small clients because an exchange server, round numbers for the server and the setup and making it all work, $10,000. For a company that might have had 100 employees as part of their server infrastructure, $10,000 they could see as a reasonable amount and that lasted them for the next three years or so. But for a small company with two or three users mm. that wanted those same facilities, spending ten grand was mm. a bit of a hit. When it got to the stage where you could spend $10 a month per user per email address, you said, well, wow, that's a lot better and it's going to take me a long time to get to $10,000, so we'll go that way. So there are other companies out there that provide these services at a cost. Google has said we're going to do it for free forever. Now they've said, you know what, these other companies charge, we think we should charge as well. So keep an eye out for that if you've got any of the, and this is the whole suite the word processing, the spreadsheets, all the suite of Gmail type or the G suite applications, then they'll start charging for all of these. And again, I'm not quite sure how they're distinguishing the business grade versus the private. Your private one should be fine, but who knows? They've started charging mm, for business. Yeah. Maybe in five years' time, all those individual users, and think of how many Gmail addresses are out there. There must be at least a billion in use. I couldn't find out how many were in use, but there'd be a lot. So imagine if they just said to all those people, Oh, look, we're only going to charge you a dollar a month to use that email address. A lot of people just go, oh, I couldn't be bothered changing. Everyone knows my email address now. Sure, I'll just pay that. A dollar a month multiplied by, say, a billion mm. sounds like a billion dollars a month, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> and they've got the server infrastructure in place. They don't have to do anything extra for that. They have to take a few complaint phone calls maybe, but they don't take phone calls. So what the heck? <laughs> At the moment, it is really about the business, the, the G Suite processes there, but Keep an eye out for that. Maybe that will change from the personal perspective as well. And I'm wondering what three zeros more than a trillion is. Is that a quadrillion? Is that <laughs> We've had this discussion before, haven't we? We need to, we need to research what our next level's up uh, oh, above the trillions. Me. Okay. Well, good luck to Google. I hope um, you have – I wish you every success. Regular li listeners will know that we talk the talk about medical tech quite a bit these days. It's a rapidly growing area with a broad and growing range of devices currently available on the market. Well, how about a tattoo that monitors your blood pressure, folks? Matt, I'm not a big fan of tats. It's just a personal choice. I don't press upon other, anyone else. Um, but maybe I'd consider a big angry dragon that just got angrier and angrier as the, my blood pressure went up. Oh, I'm going to disappoint you. you. It's, it's, it's not any shape you want at the moment. But oh, maybe what? I know. Custom maybe. tats. Maybe it'll get there. At the moment, it just consists maybe of... Maybe an angry smurf. No, okay. Well, that could be it, yeah. <laughs> but it just consists of 12 strips. They're graphene strips that you get put on as a tattoo, and it monitors your blood pressure. Now, we've monitored blood pressure basically the same way for a long period of time. Whether you do it via the electronic means or you do it with a manual cuff that you put around your arm or you don't put around your arm, your doctor puts around your arm and listens for your blood as they pump it up and let it go down, that's basically the same in electronic or manual format. But this 
is absolutely revolutionary. Having constant monitoring of your blood pressure with these yeah. 12 graphene strips, which is basically a tattoo. They, they apply it like a tattoo. You'll be glad to know, or maybe sad to know, I'm not sure which, that it's not a permanent tattoo. It's one that monitors the blood pressure for a certain period of time. Obviously, there are parts that you have to carry with you that actually read that information. So it's not on its own reading the, the blood pressure. So it basically communicates with the device that you would have. But then, of course, that feeds that through to your smartphone, feeds it through to your doctor, gives you that information. But live real-time, constant monitoring of your blood pressure yeah, wow. sounds quite incredible to me. Yeah, and look, people might be wondering what graphene is. It's just a structure of carbon. You know, you've just got carbon in these little hexagons like a, a honeycomb, but um, it's a f- completely flat honeycomb, like an atom thick. Yeah, and uh, carbon's pretty useful, isn't it? You can have it in diamonds. Yeah, you it's can awesome. have yeah, it in yeah. pencils. You and can have it in... Oh. Inert, so it's not going to react with your body and you're not going to have to wear an aluminium hat or anything like that. Um, yeah. So it, it sounds quite interesting, but again, we see so much development in technology around health at the moment. But for someone that did have some blood pressure problems, and maybe they had blood pressure problems that were triggered by things, for example, when the kids come home from school, might be a trigger for them. <laughs> so having some way of monitoring your blood pressure and having alerts that you see real time so that if you're in that situation where you are at risk and your blood pressure starts to go up because of the situation you're in, that might be a bit of a reminder to yourself to get out of that situation Mm. so that your blood pressure doesn't keep going up. So monitoring for health reasons, monitoring for your own personal analysis, but you're not going to do all that with the old-fashioned cuff, even if you use an electronic one, because it's going to be press the button, sit there, wait for a few minutes. No one's going to do that thinking, oh, I think in this situation I'm going to get frustrated watching my team play sports, so I'll better put the blood pressure cuff on. Whereas if it was on there already and then you got some alerts on your phone, I think that's where we'll see the real value out of something like this. Mm. You know, I saw a documentary once about um, – uh, it was about the different various emotions and they dedicated an hour to each emotion. And um, the one that really struck me was the anger one uh, and people who had extreme difficulty in ma- managing their anger. Right. And um, I remember a guy recounting a story about a situation he got himself into, which was uh, you know, a, a very difficult situation. But as he recounted it, he was reliving it in his mind and he started to lose control of his anger. Now, part of it was he picked up a metal pipe. And so he picked up this metal pipe and all of a sudden you could just see it in his eyes. He was about to start wielding it. He threw the pipe on the ground and he said, I've just recognized my symptoms. And so he had sweaty palms and he had a tension in his brow. And so he had learned to recognise these other symbols, where you and I might just feel like, oh, I'm getting a bit hot on the collar here. Um, He had to recognise these other symptoms. Now, this, this thing that's giving you a phone alert is giving you a big heads up well in advance before you get anywhere close to picking up that pipe. Yeah, and sometimes part of the problem we have as humans is when we're in a situation where it's not conducive to good functional management of a human being, Mm we lose track of some of those particular things. So you might not realise that you're getting high blood pressure because you're getting high blood pressure, which yeah. is affecting the way you're thinking about things. That's right. Yeah, so quite fascinating. I saw an air crash investigations the other day. I do like my air crash investigations. <laughs> uh, so where the acceleration, they went to do a landing and then had to go around. So when they did that, because they accelerated and because the plane was lighter than it is at normal takeoff, those two things together made the pilot think that he was climbing at a very steep rate. So while he was trying to climb, he actually pushed the nose down and effectively went straight into the runway because his brain was saying, you're climbing just because he's accelerating much quicker than he expected and going up. And that changed the, the liquid in his ear and they went through the whole physiological process that would have occurred. But he's pushing 
the, the plane down and the co-pilot, you can hear him saying, no, we're, we're better be pulling up. And he's going, no, I've got to get back to level. Meanwhile, if they looked at the instruments, they would have seen they were climbing at a fairly steep angle. So yeah, wow. our body gets in situations sometimes where we don't recognise the problem because we're in the problem. Yeah, goodness <laughs> me. Here's a headline that reads, Toyota has landed in a spot of hot water and is staring down the barrel of a $2 billion class action. Now, it's rather a lo- rather long headline there, Matt, but what's it all about? This, if it goes through, will be the largest class action payout in Australia's history. Now, I don't know the implications for Toyota across the world, but surely in Australia, $2 billion sounds like $2 a bit of a hit to the bottom line. Yeah, goodness yeah. me, wow. Now, there are 260,000 defective, and I say defective in inverted commas because there will be an appeal and there'll be arguments about whether they're defective or not. Allegedly but at this stage, defective. allegedly defective sounds much better, doesn't it? Uh, defective vehicles. Now, they're diesels, they're vehicles that were made by Toyota from 2015 to 2020, Prados, Hiluxes and Fortunas. So if you've got one of those, apparently, according to this court case, the actual pollution that was coming out the back was much higher than it should have been because they had a defective component in the engine or the pollution restrictions that they had in place there. And in the court case, of course, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but one of the people in the court case said that my kids looked out the back of the car and seeing all this smoke come out, they thought the car was on fire. So it sounds like a bit over the top. Maybe you kids need to learn what a bit of smoke coming out the back is. Back in the old days, that happened all the time. But this is because the pollution restrictions in the vehicle weren't working correctly. So the court at this stage has awarded anywhere from $10,500 per vehicle up to $14,000 per vehicle because the court said this has reduced the value of these vehicles when you go to sell them again as a second-hand vehicle because of this particular faulty component. Now, Toyota, of course, have said, we'll just replace that component for free. When people come back in, we replace it. We know there's an issue with it, so we replace it and everything's okay. But again, on the other side, they've said, no, you didn't do that and you didn't replace it with a component that was correct. So a lot of, I suppose, ongoing arguments to this, but this is around the technology that we see in a modern vehicle where it does restrict the pollution quite dramatically. They're much better now in terms of a diesel or a petrol car. The amount of pollution we see come out. Petrol cars, of course, have catalytic converters and mm. they do lots of work in terms of reducing pollution. So that's all great while it works, Mm. while it doesn't work, or if people don't maintain their car properly, and this isn't a maintenance issue, this one, this was a faulty component, but while it works, that's all great. But if you've got a vehicle that is a bit older, for example, and then it's not working correctly, more pollution comes out. But this is going to hurt Toyota. And I think probably not just the dollars, but from a reputational perspective, Toyota has a reputation for producing good, reliable cars that keep doing what they're meant to be doing. And people know that they're going to have something that matches the... I suppose, specs of what it should do. In this case, yeah, I think a bit of damage to the reputation will occur as well. And um, possibly a bit of advertising for EVs. Absolutely a bit of advertising for EVs. And again, you don't have these issues with an EV, but this is something, and again, we've talked about it before, that Toyota just seems to be so far behind on EVs. It's incredible. I don't see a linkage between this and EVs for Toyota, but the reality is they probably need to start thinking about the future a bit more rather than still trying to just make sure they keep producing cars and keep having parts that keep working properly in there. So, yeah, interesting, but, yeah, a bit of a hit for Toyota and maybe it'll make them rethink a whole range of things. For sure. Now, the dark web is a mysterious place that most of us probably would prefer didn't exist, but it does... And it lurks like a sewer monster somewhere in the internet pipes beyond your keyboard. 
led around by the soulless miscreants who sell, who'd sell your identity for a spare change. Matt, I can't paint an ugly enough picture of this, but there's a big market for passport details out there, and apparently they're not much, uh, not worth much more than a schooner of beer. No, they're pretty cheap. And to give people an idea of the dark web, I kind of think about I've got a bunch of retail shops out in the main street. They're brightly lit. They're legitimate retailers there. They've, they're registered. They pay mm. their taxes. They pay their employees the right amount of money. And then you just go down some little dark side alleys and late at night, yeah. if you're looking for that same product that might be one of those stores, but a bit cheaper, maybe There's a not. a guy with a truck and the back door's open. And it's, yeah, yeah. And let's sell you those same-ish products, maybe some other ones that aren't quite the same, and we'll give you some of those. And, oh, the law's coming, we'll close the back of the truck and off we drive. Yeah. So we'll try and get away with that. So that's kind of, if you like, the physical analogy of what the dark web is. It's a group of people who like to operate outside the law and trade in things that maybe aren't that quite lawful. So, for example, Australian passports. You can get a your copy. Identity. Your identity. You can get a copy of an Australian passport, not the physical one, but a, a virtual copy, a photo if you like, with all the details you might need to go and be someone else, for example, mm. for $16.50. Sounds pretty cheap. Yeah. You can get driver's licenses, Australian driving licenses, $48.00 mobile phone numbers and emails and logins, $13. Unbelievable. You start putting some of these things together, you can create an identity that is someone's real identity. You can apply for online bank loans. You can go yeah. and do a whole range of things, get some phone contracts, get a new phone Credit sent out to you, and uh, all those sort of things. And the poor person whose identity has been stolen gets a phone call from their credit card company, so you're overdue with your payments. Well, I've been really good this month. I haven't used my credit card at all. Well, in fact, you have. You're almost at the limit, actually. Yeah. No, how can that be? So that type of thing, or take out loans in your name and then banks start chasing you down for those loans. So having your identity stolen is really bad because getting it back, it's not like having your password stolen that you just have to create a new password for. Having your identity stolen, what do you do? Do you create a new date of birth? Do you create a new name? Mm. It's a pretty big drama. But it goes further than that. You can actually get physical passports, for example, for $10,000. Now you think, well, what do I want a physical passport for? Ten grand. Uh, I need to have something pretty serious I'm going to do for that. But for someone that wants to escape the country, for example, let's say you're being let out on bail from a crime that you're going to be tried for in a couple of months' time, well, I might leave the country, but I can't leave the country because I'm out on bail. Oh, hold on, if I suddenly become someone else, yeah. then I can go and leave the country. So physical passports, when someone says, I'm in a bit of trouble, I need a new identity, it happens in the movie, so it must be real, you see that happen, and the way you would do that is something like a physical passport. So, yeah, it's all out there, it's happening, and I suppose the, the real message from us is just be vigilant, be careful, be aware. There are people out there who are happy to be James Eddy and Matthew Dickerson for a whole range of bad reason mm. so just be aware if something happens that looks a bit unusual then just jump all over it and the sad thing the sadder thing is is that my identity has just been sto uh, well, stolen and um, sold for next to nothing next to nothing and of course the way they'll normally trade with these is with cryptocurrencies because it's pretty hard to track who's trading those cryptocurrencies <laughs> so when you want to know who sold you that well that cryptocurrency probably won't give you that information right I'm moving to Mars okay <laughs> What's the latest must-have if you wanted to be spotted at Venice Beach in California these days, do you reckon? The convertible and the chopper motorbikes, they've had their day. BMX bikes and roller skates, well, they were so 80s. They made way for rollerblades and scooters in the 90s, which then gave way to the segways of the noughties. Now in the roaring 20s, it's all about the electric motorbike. 
and a brand name called Lime is bringing the good juice, Matt. It is indeed. And I do like Lime. I've ridden some Lime scooters around the world at different places. It's always interesting when you turn up to a city and you say, I wonder if the e-scooters in this city are going to be one of the ones that I'm already using or do I need to go and download a new app and register myself with a new company. But Lime is one I've seen that's got a fairly good presence around different parts of the world. So e-scooters have been pretty popular for these type of companies and I'm sure they're making good money out of them and I'm sure it's all very successful. So then a lot of them have ventured further into e-bikes. And in fact, they've done it in some places where e-scooters were illegal, so they've gone the e-bike option and that's a pretty good option as well. They're pretty good in terms of having helmets associated with them and you jump on your e-bike and most people know how to ride a bike and it just makes those hills a bit easier. Mm. But this is the first one that I've seen where a company said, you know what, why don't we go to electric motorbikes? We've done cars, we've done boats, we're looking at planes, no one's talking about bike, uh, motorbikes yet. Well, there's a couple of companies that have talked about electric motorbikes, but not in this oh, right. short-term hire space. So, hi, okay. hey, Davidson, I've got a whole new division they're creating around electric motorbikes. Okay. So you see a few like that, but they haven't really hit mainstream yet. But this is a way that I think you'll see them hit mainstream is when you've got that shared device scheme, like the e-scooters, like the e-bikes. And so they've come up with this concept where they said you can hire a bike, scan the QR code on the bike, use your app, hire it as you would with an e-scooter, for example. It doesn't say anything about having a motorbike license, but surely you've got to have a motorbike license to be able to ride these. So that would make sense. There's a blurred line here. (laughs) Well, and I don't know. They're not the most incredibly powerful motorbikes. They do limit their speed. You're talking about maybe 30 or 40 kilometres an hour. So in terms of getting around, they're not designed to jump on one and ride 100 kilometres away, Mm. but they're also electric. So they're not going to ride huge distances. They really are designed for that small commute around a city, around somewhere where you just want to see the sights, just do, I'll go from here to those shops up the road there. I don't like the e-scooter, they feel a bit dangerous. The e-bike, don't like pedalling. Oh, well, I'll go the e-motorbike, e-shared motorbike idea. <laughs> so it's only started, first of all, in one location in uh, in Long Beach, obviously, and they're called the Citra, which I suppose is a bit of a play on lime and Why citrus and yeah, whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, so anyway, they're called the Citra. They are electric. They'll give you enough range to get around for the day on those short stops. And then the process is obviously there's a whole ecosystem of people that go and charge up these devices at night time either via portable chargers or they pick them up and charge them and deliver them back there but there's a whole industry for people out mm. there that can do that sort of work which is you know, great work for those people that do it but I, I really like the idea I like the idea I mean I've got a motorbike license so I do ride motorbikes a bit so if I turn up somewhere and thought I need to get somewhere a bit quicker than the e-scooter because they're not the fastest thing then I'll go one of those and, and we had a funny incident the other day we were in Canberra and there were two of us that had to go across to the art gallery for a function at night and we said oh well it's only it, it was about a five minute taxi ride we said oh no we'll, we'll go the e-scooter option and we both jumped on e-scooters and we're going along and it was a couple of kilometers it was probably a 15 minute e-scooter trip and about halfway there of course beeping came from the e-scooter on the person beside me uh. beeping away and he said what do you reckon that beeping is and i said i'll oh, have a look at the screen it might be a flat battery and he just hadn't checked the battery before he jumped on it was night time so it had been used a lot during that day so halfway there he then had a very heavy scooter that he had to push along for the rest of the trip <laughs> There was no rope on my e-scooter to tow them along. So <laughs> so that's the sort of thing that can happen with them. But again, for this sort of scenario where it's just a matter of jump on a motorbike, away we go, get around that city a bit quicker. I love the idea. Mm. I think we're going to see more and more of these. Some people get concerned. They get left in inconvenient places. They get mm. thrown in rivers, all sorts of things. But I just think that's a minority. I think the mm. majority of uses of all of these is just convenient ways for tourists in particular to get around a city. And a great idea. 
Writers of Mad Max were probably somewhere on the right track with their dystopian uh, future featuring dry landscapes because access to fresh water is a major problem heading our way in the future. Two-thirds of our planet is covered by water, but only a tiny percentage of that, in fact, I think it's about 1.2%, is actually accessible, potable, fresh water. And with so many reservoirs around the world positioned right near the coast, these are at risk of being tainted if sea levels rise. We need a plan, Matt. Desalination is a solution, but a very energy-expensive one. They need loads of energy to do their job. Matt, are we looking at nuclear-powered desalination plants to create fresh water on a massive scale here? What about nuclear-powered boats that were desal plants? That's the what? latest. That's the latest. This is <laughs> sounding cooler by the minute. So you are right. A tiny amount of our water across the planet is actually fresh. And then even when I say fresh, it might not be... It might actual... be locked up as ice or it might be under the ground. That That's you can't right. Access it. Yeah. And it might not be drinkable. It might not be potable. It might be mm. fresh, not salt water. But it might not be actually at a standard that we actually drink it. So... Treating our water is very important and cities across the world treat water and actually get it to the stage where we can drink it. That's fantastic. But the demand for fresh drinking water is going to keep increasing mm. and the estimation is that there will be a shortfall of trillions of litres of not enough water by, say, the year 2030. So we've got to have some solutions. Add to that something like the tsunami. So for Sri- in Sri Lanka, for example, when the tsunami hit back about 2004, yeah. There was certainly death and destruction initially, but then after that, because people had lost the ability to get fresh drinking water because yeah, so much the infrastructure water had been tainted. That's right. People then died because they didn't have fresh drinking water. They couldn't access that, or they tried to drink some other water that had diseases in it. So a lot of illness and a lot of disease and death occurred, not just from the initial impact of the tsunami, but the latest design is for a ship that is nuclear powered, so it can power for a long time on a very small amount of the raw components and having a desal plant on board. So you could send that ship to somewhere where there was a disaster. So a tsunami's just hit somewhere, quick, send that ship. Not too many days later, there's a ship anchored offshore, as close as possible, obviously, running from a nuclear power plant so it can run for a long time, and it's actually doing the desal process. Now, desal is really energy intensive. You're putting water at very high pressure through a membrane, which requires a lot of energy, but you've got nuclear power there. So you've got a lot of energy there. Then you've only just got to have some pipes to run inland to basically get that fresh water inland. So almost an endless supply, because let's face it, you're sitting on the ocean. So Mm. you've got an access to some easy water supply there. So when you start to look at that, you then start to think about other parts of the world that may not have had a disaster, may not have great access to fresh drinking water. So take some very poor countries, as long as they're near the coast somewhere, you can take this ship along, park it there, and there's access to your fresh drinking water without having to pipe water from the ocean into somewhere for a desal plant. It's all there on board. You've just got to get the water from the ship into the inland parts, and then away you can go and distribute it from there. So a great concept, a great idea. We've got nuclear-powered vessels, nuclear-powered submarines are a common thing that we see now. So having a nuclear-powered ship still makes people feel nervous. Oh no, what about if that ship runs aground? What about if that mm. ship sinks? Whatever else. So there are some risks associated with it. But I think nuclear power now, we've got to the stage where we can contain those risks pretty well. Mm. Probably the big risk would be someone hitting it with a missile, but we don't seem to be doing a lot of that at the moment. Fingers crossed about that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it is an interesting concept, isn't it? Having a portable desal plant, nuclear-powered, and maybe then we will see more on-land nuclear-powered desal plants. And when we think of nuclear power, we do think of these big nuclear power stations that are there to provide power for a whole range of purposes. 
But there are also examples where we've talked about them, where you can have something the size of a container that's like a mini nuclear power, completely mm. sealed nuclear powered battery. So combining that, for example, with a small desal plant, you've got extra portability. You could go and drop that on land in various places where they don't have access to good clean drinking water. Sorry, and did you say these ships are actually, they've been built already? They're, they're ready to go? Building. So the building. design's been finished. They're building these ships that we speak. If there was a disaster tomorrow, we don't have the ship ready to go and send out to that site. Mm. But they're in the process of building these right now. I think that's amazing. And that is a wrap, folks, on another cracking tech talk. I'm off to photograph some flowers and maybe send them to folks at the Internet Explorer Memorial. (laughs) How about you, Matt? Um, Maybe uh, we could start making plans for creating an electric bikey gang. Well, that'd be cool, what wouldn't would it? Yeah. Like? What would be the emblem on our jacket? Just a, a lightning bolt? That's too obvious, isn't it? We know it's something a bit more subtle than a lightning bolt, don't we? <laughs> but before we get ourselves put on a hit list, uh, we better go. I'm James Eddy, signing off on another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. We hope to see you again next week. And if you haven't already, please hit the like button or whack us in as a favourite. Leave a comment and have a great week. 